2: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
3: Hello! Well, hello, I've got a bone to pick with you. Oh no, not another one. Yes. Last week, we did an episode which I thought was uh, w- one of my favourites, and Sue Goss used that example of how we've tended to think of the, the state as being like a machine with the government on the levers, and instead we should be thinking of it as a garden. Yeah. So we, we do these, these videos for Instagram and Twitter to promote the, the podcast. And yeah. after we finished recording, we, we made a deal that I would go away and record a bit talking about the machine, and you would go into your garden and yeah. record a bit talking about the... The, the garden yeah so i went to the effort i i went into the cellar and i found a wrench i went next door and i asked the neighbors to lend me their car keys i set up a tripod in the street i was in front of their engine i did my bit what happened to you where were you with your pinking shears and your wellies well I got sort of slightly
4: timed out, and then I spoke to Joel, he said, blaming somebody else in you know, a Boris Johnson style, and Joel
3: said, well, Jeff doesn't seem to have done it either. What?
4: So I thought the pressure was off me, you see.
5: No!
3: So this is going to end up being like one of those lost episodes of Doctor Who. It's a masterpiece, but nobody will ever see it. I'm so sorry. Mm. You, you, have my, you, have my, you have my profound apologies. I wanted to see you as the next Percy Thrower. Oh dear, I'm so Sorry. You know, Percy Thrower was buried in the Blue Peter Garden, and when they moved it to Manchester, they had to uh, exhume him and, and move him up there, along with Shep. Apart from my sort of faux pas, massive faux pas, for which I apologise, how's your week been? Well, I covered the late shift on Radio 5 Live the other night, and the the floor of New Broadcasting House in London, where I do that from, the toilets were being refurbished, so I got terrible anxiety because I often like to dash out during the, the news and uh, have a quick evacuation. Yeah. So I made, I thought before the, before the show starts, I'm going to go to the nearest toilet and r- really try and ring every last dropout, so to speak. <laughs> so I went right the way across the building to the other side. The gents were out of order. The only usable loo that wasn't the ladies was a disabled toilet. And bearing in mind, at this point, I've got about five minutes before I'm due to go on the air. The door is locked. Somebody is in there. And, and I'm waiting. I'm tapping my toes. I'm taking my time. I'm doing that thing, you know, where you just try the door, where really you're trying the door to say to the person passive-aggressively on the inside, hurry up a little bit. Eventually, the door opens. And let me guess. Let me guess. Yeah. Hang on. Don't give it away. Is it BBC personality? Yeah. Hugh Edwards. Emily Maitless with her hair in rollers. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. What did, you, what did you say? There was a, an awkward bit of eye contact and then in I went. I mean, there was no time for pleasantries. But obviously <laughs> they were getting ready to go on air for news night because when I came out, her and Nick Watt were having a very animated conversation in the office because Boris Johnson's dinner in Brussels had just finished. There was this new deadline. So it was a, all, all very uh, high energy. But seeing Emily Maitlis with her hair in rollers was a real, real high point for me this week. And what did she think of your rollers?
4: <laughs> actually i have got some news which is electric bike update um i managed to on the way to the cold water swimming get up the it's not get up the complete hill but but get up the hill to get to the turning and that was quite a it's quite a hard hill to get up so you know I, i'm showing quite a lot of
3: willpower in not turning on the electric whoosh you and i are so different I I just hear that and I think, why wouldn't you use the electric to get up a hill? Why would you put yourself through that? Midlife crisis fitness obsession. Of course, yeah, there is that. (laughs) Right. I mean, isn't isn't that the case? Yeah, I think so. Now, next week is going to be our Christmas episode... And usually, in normal times, we invite a couple of friends and we play some kind of Christmas game and we eat mince pies. Class struggle normally. Yeah, but th- this year that's not possible. Um, so we thought, what what can we do? And it occurred to us that we've never done an AMA. Have you ever done an AMA, Ed?
4: No, this was born with Reddit, wasn't it? Reddit AMA.
3: Yes, and they're hugely popular. And I think, you know, we wouldn't be the first podcast to do this but we thought what why not do something a bit different for christmas so we need uh, we need you to uh, a as some cues uh, really and they can be about a eh? so so any questions maybe you should explain to people what it is oh ask me anything so when i say you can uh, a as any cues about a i mean you can ask us any questions about anything mm. i hope that's uh, that's cleared that little matter up um so so i'd like to stress here it's it's christmas time they don't need to be serious. Um, you you can be frivolous. There could be a festive spirit behind them if you like. But if there is a burning question about the the state of the world or uh, Ed's, Ed's uh, time in politics, you want to ask him. That is fine. But if you you know want to ask some of the finer details about shrinkage during the cold water swimming. That That is also fine. No, it's not. Well, so yeah, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us through the website. Go to cheerfulpodcast.com. That's cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, or if you want to email us directly, it's reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. But we will try and rattle through as many of those as we can next week for our Christmas episode. Get your questions in. Right, shall we talk about what we're talking about on this week's episode then? This week we're talking about how
4: unequal we are as a country in terms of place and in terms of the places that have been excluded from prosperity. Britain is more regionally unequal than any of our peers, with deep divides not just in our economy but on a whole host of measures, including health and well-being. And at the same time, and this is not coincidental, we are one of the most centralised countries. And it's particularly true of England, because we have seen significant devolution to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Now, the government has a rhetoric about levelling up. Uh, It's, in a way, the latest attempt of many governments to address regional inequality over the last few decades. But none has really genuinely succeeded. To find out why we're going to be talking to Tony Travers from the London School of Economics, we'll be asking him why we're such a centralised country and how our current problems are shaped by our past. And then we'll be talking to Sarah Longlands from IPPR North and Neil McEnroy from the Centre for Local Economic Strategies about the scale of regional inequality and how giving power away could
3: help to genuinely level up the UK. And our cheerful people this week are the hosts of a new French podcast, Inspired. We've been an inspiration, uh, inspired by our podcast. It's called AC. May we? Mais oui. Mais oui. You, you'd think uh, with all those uh, series of Call My Agent that I've watched, my French pronunciation would be better than it is, but it's, uh, it's not happening. Are ever. we stuck at series three of Call My series Agent? Series four has just aired in France, so we're just waiting for Netflix to do the subtitles, I think. Exciting. Uh, anyway, this po- podcast is called AC which means what if. It's hosted by journalist Camille Mastrachi and former French presidential candidate Benoît Hamon and they will be joining us in the cheerful people slot this week. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, I think I previewed this last um week
4: and that is the fact that you know I, I feel bad about this because you know one of our kids said we shouldn't let's let's try not to buy a
3: christmas tree this year but let's try and sort of design our own type of thing circular mm. economy um, and what you described last week uh, it sounded well meaning but perhaps not not picturesque honestly i mean
4: my wife just deserves a massive um sort of congratulations on this i mean she did just a tremendous job of kind of designing a tree i'm actually
3: gonna i'm actually gonna send it to you right this second I'm desperate because the way you were describing it last week sounded like a a bundle of kindling or some kind of weird pyre, like something from the Blair Witch Project. I've just sent it to you. Hang on, let me just get my phone. I'm going to have a look at this. I'm going to be honest here. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) It's pretty good, isn't it? It is good, yeah. It it looks like something you'd see in a boutique hotel. It's sort of true, isn't it? That's great. Well, I, I was completely wrong to be uh, sceptical about your family's ability to, to build an eco-friendly Winterville monument. Well, that's what it is. Beautiful. That's my reason to be cheerful. What's, what, what's yours? My son was chosen to be featured on his school's Instagram feed this week. Mm. Yeah, he had some homework about uh, designing a spacesuit and they're allowed to submit videos. And, and I went a bit nuts, really, with the video. I interviewed him about what the spacesuit would be and then filmed him drawing it. And then I cut it to David Bowie's Starman and put, you know, proper title sequence. And, uh, I mean, it was a great production. I, I would say I, I did 95% of the homework, but it, it paid off, though. He's, he's been featured on, on Instagram.
4: What a brilliant father you are.
3: I am. Although he he then said to my wife uh, a little later, he said that he said um, when he's a grown up, he wants to be on TV, and Sarah was horrified. She had to explain to him that she she doesn't think a lot of the people on TV are well balanced, and trying to explain to a four year old what, what well balanced means didn't go very well. Here's the funny
4: thing: you were talking about going to see the Muppets Christmas uh, Carol last week, yes, and what happened? But my wife suddenly said last weekend totally great minds think alike let's watch the muppets christmas carol on tv oh did you enjoy it i i didn't watch all of it i confess uh <laughs> but the but uh, justine and the kids really enjoyed it
2: you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd
3: well we're very excited because we're, we're going to get to the bottom of this question that has been perplexing us Why are we so centralized here in the UK? We've got the go to guy, the guru, the eminent mind in his field. It's Tony Travers, professor in practice at LSE and director of LSE London. Uh, Tony, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Great to be with you. Let's get straight to it. Why are we so centralized here in the UK?
6: Well, it's something to do with history, of course. Everything is in the long-evolved system. And I won't go on and on about this, but let me go on and on for a fraction. I mean, you know, England, and I do mean England, has been a single country for a thousand years or more. And it was, you know, governed by the crown in the shape of an actual monarch with absolute powers for quite a long time. Although gra- gradually those you know, were passed across to Parliament and the Crown sort of separated into all the institutions of the state we know today. But, so England has a long, long, long history as being governed as a single place by this powerful individual at the top of it. Then, you know, Wales was conquered by England and that's been part of England and Wales for a very long time. Scotland joined, Northern Ireland or Ireland joined and then part of it left again. But what I think also is important is the scale of the country, bigger countries have tended to come up with federal devolved systems for obvious reasons. But also, um, subsequent to the Second World War, as the empire ended, I think Parliament turned its attentions away from governing chunks of the world to governing Britain. And as the, as the welfare state evolved, there was more to govern. So I think more recently that's happened. There was an in-between period when Parliament and government was uh, running great chunks of the world. Um, and at that point, municipal government in big cities like Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds grew up. So the long history is you've got this sort of powerful, long-evolved state briefly there was a flowering of local government in big cities in particular in the late 19th and early 20th century then after the second world war when the empire um ceases mostly um parliament and government turn their attention to governing the new welfare state that's a kind of bit of a simplification of a very complicated issue but i think most of the elements are there
4: you mentioned tony uh and honestly this is really fascinating you you mentioned 19th century municipalism tell us a little bit because some of our listeners may not know that much about about it tell us kind of what the expressions of that were the most sort of famous examples and and a little bit more about why that happened and then
6: got snuffed out yes i mean this all has to do with industrialization you know we we all know um Britain was the first country to industrialise the Industrial Revolution, sort of starting in the late 18th century and running through the 19th century, created vast, what were for the time, vast cities. And as those mega cities, uh, for the time, huge cities developed, they needed government, partly because they had a large, relatively poor working class, working in factories, whose Conditions and housing was not good, and there were very few public services: no parks, no libraries, nowhere to wash. And so, um, particularly though, not only in Birmingham, and um, the 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 sort of most famous exponent of this is Joseph Chamberlain, uh, part of the Chamberlain political dynasty. Uh, He was a liberal actually at the time; they moved across to the Conservatives later. And um, Joseph Chamberlain, as the mayor of Birmingham, was the most visible exponent of street improvements housing improvements providing tramways banks places for people to wash parks better roads sorry to interrupt did he have that
4: power did he have that power anyway was that power vested in local government and it was just being used by him uh, in an unprecedented way or did he
6: grab the power and and how was he able to do that well, in the freewheeling way of the time, uh, in enlightened uh, self-interest, as it was called, and businessmen, and they were men at the time, the, the people who owned the businesses in cities like Birmingham or Manchester um, realised that it was in their interest that the people who worked in their factories lived in reasonable homes and had clean water and all of that. And so as that came along... As that, that, that realisation dawned, those city leaders petitioned Parliament after the 1832 Reform Act were able to put, and further legislation, able to petition Parliament to get effectively a new city government for Name Your City with tax-raising powers that then had all of these freedoms. And at the time, you know, uh, Disraeli and Gladstone were far more interested in ruling the world or the bits of it that were pink on the map than troubling themselves with whether the trans were working in Birmingham or Manchester. And that, in a sense, the whole orientation of government, the imperial parliament, as you will know better than me at the time, was overseas and building up Britain's naval power and international and, relations. And, and now you've, in a way you've covered this um, already, but it is worth
4: emphasising. I mean, you're saying that in the 18, in the 19th century, Chamberlain had these powers... But we, we've, we've sort of, in some sense, gone backwards on the on the powers question. I mean, was it 1945? Was it was it uh, earlier than that?
6: Well, that, I think it was a bit earlier. It was Sydney and Beatrice Webb. I mean, uh, uh, as the um, Fabian, the Fabian, famous the Fabians, 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 who also were responsible for setting up the London School of Economics and Political Science. Right. So they've got a lot to answer for. Yeah. They've got a lot to answer for, and they realised that, uh, and of course. Um, this was We're talking about the, the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century, that there were gross inequalities uh, from place to place and very different standards of local government as, as it had evolved. This was also at a time of popularism where George Lansbury, it's always worth reminding the audience, you know, the, the actress Angela Lansbury's grandfather. Yes, wow. uh, exactly. Yes,
4: that's true. I, who I, and I met her when I was leader. I would not say it was one of my best moments as leader, I met her.
6: So her grandfather, George Lansbury, as leader of Poplar Borough Council, had gone on a strike and ended up in prison uh, because he wouldn't tax people locally enough to... Uh, he wanted to hold back on some of the local tax, which he was paying across to the London County Council because he thought it was unfair when richer parts of the city, London, were paying much less... Uh, or less per head. So uh, you see in all of this, the beginnings of the idea of redistribution and regulation of local government, redistribution from central to local government to equalise and to be fairer, regulation to ensure decent standards. And the Fabians are where that starts, really. And then after the war, 1945, uh, you see, you know, with the, uh, the Labour government, the advent of much bigger welfare services. Um, the fact that running those through local government is too expensive for the rates to pay for, and then you need bigger grants from upper to lower, to, from national government to local government, and then national governments involved in funding education, social services, social housing, and so on. And, you know, eventually he who plays the piper calls the tune. And we've talked a bit about the left. On the
4: right, is the British right unusually centralising compared to uh, other countries? Is is there a sort of, has it varied? Is it it sort of ideological
6: the, the right has been, and famously, that you can see it ever since. It's always, you know, like all these long term traditions in politics, they're always still there. I mean, whereas the Liberals and then the Labour Party were in favour of, favour of creating more powerful municipal institutions, uh, Lord Salisbury, Conservative Prime Minister at the end of the 19th century, you know, really believed in small units of local government, uh, the, the idea that politics is best delivered at a relatively local level or at the national level, and that you want small units that represent people at a relatively small C conservative, represent ratepayer interest and all of that. Whereas uh, progressives, as they tended to be called before they were called liberals or Labour in local government, believed in bigger government and Uh, rate payers and or getting money out of rate payers and borrowing money and building things so it was a sort of classic uh, still there today left right split between smaller units and smaller government on the one side bigger units and bigger government on the other and and you know it's absolutely
4: brilliant to get the long view talk to us about the last two or three decades because we've seen devolution in scotland wales and northern ireland and more halting, ad hoc devolution in England. How do you kind of view that as
6: as as part of this picture? The Blair government in 1997, after 18 years of Conservative government, I won't need to remind you of that. Um, uh, you know, came along with this clear. Uh, proposal to introduce devolution to Scotland and to Wales. Partly, I think, it was thought uh, to reduce the growing tide of nationalism, or at least to to give it a voice in Scotland. And thereafter, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland all get their own assemblies, which eventually are all legislative, you know, know, lawmaking. And then you've got the question of England. And England is still just run by the UK government in a rather centralised way. It's true, the Labour government at the time set up the Greater London Authority to replace the Greater London Council, which Mrs Thatcher's government had abolished. But then the rest of England was going to get some form of regional government. There was a referendum in 2004, which we'll all remember, which... This was uh, a North East referendum. The North East referendum, which failed by more than three to one, but... Out of the ashes of that sprung up, first in Greater Manchester, um, city regional government. The Greater Manchester 10 districts worked together, came up with an economic plan, and then the hero of the hour is George Osborne. George Osborne, a northwestern MP, not many of those in the Conservative Party at the time, comes to realise that the Conservative Party needs to make overtures to the Midlands and the North, particularly the North, and offers the Greater Manchester 10 more powers in exchange for a directly elected mayor as well. So we see the evolution not only there, but in the West Midlands around Birmingham, Liverpool, and now elsewhere, of models that are different to London, the London model, but have some similarities with it. Question, what do you do about the rest of the country, which is where we've got to now? OK, well, that's, that's perfectly
4: takes us uh, to the next place to go, Tony, which is we have a thing on the podcast which is highly undemocratic and centralising uh, called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the sort of benign, um, kind of monarchical ruler. Um, but let's say he could have gave you carte blanche um, to sort of reform local government, devolution and whatever else you liked,
6: really. Um, what would you do from where we are? I think we probably do need in England to move to a single tier of unitary authorities throughout and then allow the creation of combined authorities with mayors or you might call them something else, governors perhaps in rural areas, so that the whole of England has a reasonably uniform system. And then I think it would be possible to devolve more power consistently to all of those units And that would create an England version of devolution. It wouldn't be legislative, but it would be a voice for all those areas of England. And I think that therefore, you know, that would allow an English version of devolution, which would create a constitutional counterbalance to Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and all the problems that there are because of, you know, the fact that Scottish MPs can vote on English legislation, but not on Scottish legislation on the same subject. And and um, just
4: on that, on the point about what reform you want to see, you're responding to the fact that the Osborne, well, the 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 reforms that began with George Osborne are very sort of pick and mix. They don't really cover the whole country. It's very, I mean, it strikes me as a very centralising way of devolving. You're sort of saying, make it less kind of central control and more, more more uniform at
6: least well i mean you make a good point i mean you know we are never but a but a small step in in uh, england within the united kingdom from you know louis the 14th are we because it's true decentralization is at some Je- level Jeff a centralized it's a step the first actually so it's all very british the way this has been done and um but I think if there were a consistent pattern across the country, across England, it would then be possible to devolve more power and more resources to it. And that would allow, as I say, a version of devolution to England, which gets around the problem of, you know, the eccentricity of people trying to create an English parliament and all the other things they try to do from time to time. Um, Tony Travers, it's been brilliant. We really appreciate your time. Thanks Thanks. so much for joining us. Thank you too. Bye.
4: Now, to talk about where devolution and the whole debate should be going now and in the future, I'm delighted to say that we are joined uh, again because they've both been on before at different times by, and you become friends of the pod when this happens. Sarah Longlands, who is director of IPPR North, and Neil McEnroy, who is chief executive of the Centre for Local Economic Strategies. Thank you so much, both, for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks a bundle. Let's start with Sarah. Uh, Sarah, IPPR North has just published its annual State of the North report. Tell us, just as a, if you like, a sort of starting point for our listeners, what have you found about the state of, of, of inequality, regional inequality in the UK? Um,
2: well, it's not a very cheery read, I have to say, um, but it's it certainly lays bare the, the scale of the challenge that we face um, in regions like the North. Um, so I guess one of the, the big headlines is the fact that the North is experiencing levels of unemployment that we haven't seen since sort of 1994. Um, so that's really the, the COVID effect kicking in there. But we, our, our research also finds that even before COVID, um, inequalities um, but in terms of things like child poverty, one in three children growing up in poverty in the North, um people in the north becoming much iller sooner in their lives with um conditions such as coronary heart disease and, and diabetes um and uh, and also levels of skills as well so you know, 8.2% of people of working age population in the north with with no qualifications whatsoever and uh, and I guess one of the most serious the 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 low wage um economy that we have as well so you know a, a huge range of issues and and uh, I think covid is really um, those inequalities have been a lightning rod for COVID, um, and we are seeing that flash up um, across the north in terms of the the correlation between deprivation and, and infection rate.
3: Can I can I just ask Sarah? I know this this specific report is state of the north, but when when we talk uh, about the sort of divides in this country, uh, we're, we're also talking about other parts of the country like the southwest. Uh, for for example, is it where, where is it not true of it? Is it just not true of London and the South East?
2: Um, well. Not necessarily, because I mean, if you look at somewhere like London, it's got the highest level of child poverty in the whole of the UK. Um, so you know, it's not you know, it's not that the North has like some sort of monopoly on on disadvantage, if you like. Um, but I think what, what what we're trying to what we're arguing is that place matters. That where you live in this country determines, to a certain extent, your life chances and, and the degree to which you can earn a, a a particular level of wage that you can have a certain a quality of life. Um, and we think that's wrong. we think we don't think it should be dependent on on where you live the, the place shouldn't impact on on your ability to live a, a live a good life
4: neil let's let's turn to you 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 work um at CLEZ on building strong local economies. Talk to us from your perspective about how centralized government uh, has driven our economy to be so centered on London and the southeast
7: I think we need to look long deep, and hard our economic model and approach is inequality and in poverty producing now there's geographical manifestations of that and there's social manifestations of it but fundamentally the way our economy run historically for many years creates halves and have nots geographically and socially and it's entrenched in the UK state now let's think about the history to that though Ed If you think about our economic state It's based on the empire Hub and spoke model London, the head of the empire The spokes, the industrial heartlands Trains getting built, steel getting made And London, the city-state that ran the empire Modern countries are networked Nodes, distributed Germany's network distributed, Japan network distributed, France network distributed. We still have eighteenth-century governance for a twenty-first-century country. In terms of London, the south east, they are as much the victims of this process as Hartlepool, because one in four children are poor in London, as they are probably similar figures in Hartlepool so this is not london and the rest this is an economic problem that produces poverty and inequality
3: but but the, the, the you know as, uh, as as sarah said place is a factor in this and i feel like my whole life i have heard you know different politicians talking about ideas to redress that balance um yeah, particularly with regards to North and South, and the latest is Boris Johnson's government talking about levelling up. What, why have previous attempts failed? Why has this tended to go nowhere, Neil?
7: We've had roughly 80 years of this identification of the problem. It goes right back to the Barlow Commission in 1940, right the way through. And was that Gary's granddad? It was Gary's granddad. I uh,
4: Ken. <laughs> My cultural reference points are so terrible that if I, if I can sort of scrape one
7: out of the bottom of the barrel, I, can, I tend to try and do it. Don't give me your fake humbleness. We know that you're scholarly. <laughs> you know exactly the Barlow Commission 1940. You read it as an undergraduate. I'm sure you did.
3: You probably read it at primary school. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably I asked it, for yeah. it for Christmas. <laughs> Sorry, Neil, carry on.
7: Barlow Commission identified this. And the fundamental flaw of the Barlow Commission, the Ministry for Reconstruction, the Wilson government, the... Uh, new Labour government, the Thatcher government, all talking about this, is they talked about it as a regional question, a regional problem. Yeah, it's about where do we put our industry? It's not about that. It's about the fundamental flaws in the economic model and the economic state. And it's also, so it's not just econ- economics, it's dem- democratic question in terms of power. And it's a constitutional question in terms of um, how do we organise our process of governance. It links to democracy. It links to how we run the actual country and asking the big questions about what is the UK state and who is it run for. That's your question here.
3: Sarah, am I right in thinking that the, uh, the, the current government's recently announced £4 levelling up fund doesn't address... The issues that Neil is talking about them.
2: Mm, yeah, no. I, unfortunately, um, I don't think I don't think it really, and it comes anywhere close. You know, given the fact that Germany has spent 18 billion pounds t- since um, 2018 on on its kind of lagging parts of, of of the country, particularly you know following reunification. I don't think it's anywhere near enough, and I think more disappointing is the fact that it's like a central pot. It, you know, it's a single pot, and so everyone is going to be scurrying around for the next, you know, few months. i um, writing applications, and and their, their focus is not on what's happening locally; it's on Westminster and trying to get an application that, that fits whatever Westminster are looking for. So we've got this stupid situation. We're all sitting around waiting for Westminster to make a decision again. We're waiting for you know Westminster to throw us a bob or two. You know, it's just it's just kind of ridiculous, really, in this day and age that um, that local and combined authorities can't be trusted. to to get on and try and and, and deal with the crisis that's unfolding before them,
3: you know. Neil, what are your thoughts on how devolution could support a move to a a different economic model? Um, I I take it it's it's not the George Osborne model that you have in mind.
7: No, not the George Osborne pleading model uh, with its northern powerhouse brand looking for a product that was never found. The question you asked, Jeff, is one not just for us pointy heads and Ed with all his books and his, and his, and his Barlow Commission understanding.
4: <laughs> Gary Barlow collection.
7: Yeah, Gary Barlow collection. It's not for us to decide. This is something that the British people need to have a serious conversation around. What sort of um, country do we want to live in? And what sort of form of representation do we want? I'm sure if we had a vote tomorrow on whether we want the House of Lords, it wouldn't get many votes, yeah? So we need to have a deep conversation. Scotland had the Constitutional Convention in the 90s. Why can't England have a constitutional conversation? Let's have across the country, citizens' assemblies, every community, let's get in the town hall. What do we want? Do we want a federal England? Do we want a beefed up local government? Do we want Metro mayors? Let's trust the great British people. We're clever people. We get on broadly.
3: Sarah, can you talk to us a bit about the, the limits of devolved power in the current system? I'm thinking specifically, you know, we saw Andy Burnham, King in the North, clash with uh, Westminster over the uh, tears the, the and the funding during coronavirus. Uh, what are the limits and, and how could that be done better?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was an extraordinary week, I think, for all of us who, who uh, worked and, and lived in the North. Um, I think fundamentally for me, it showed up the the lack of institutional architecture, if you like, for how the centre talks to the rest of the country, the rest of the UK. Um, that the only way to do it is through these kind of smoke filled rooms uh, virtually if you like on zoom um but like you know, that 's the only way to do it that, that, and, and there isn 't a kind of a, a coordinating function which allows local government to speak directly to combined or local authorities and so you end up with this ad hocery of you know people talking to the press and other people whispering on behind the scenes um, and it 's no way to run a country in the middle of a, a pandemic, so I think that 's a big lesson from 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 covid really in in terms of devolution, I think that what's interesting about it is that it, it demonstrates that devolution is a process, not an end in itself. Um, and that devolution, now, now the genie is out of the bottle, you can't put a bag in. And so how we, we don't know how exactly that's going to develop in the future, but um, Andy Burnham has certainly been trying to push devolution um, in a way that perhaps you haven't seen so far um, from other combined authorities. And look, we have this thing on
4: the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the benign dictator. And by the way, Neil, you abolishing the House of Lords is not going to go down well with 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 Jeff because he's he was hoping to get there one day. What else would you would you be telling him are the key priorities for what needs to be done?
2: Um, I think I think the point about getting people involved in the conversation I think is is absolutely right um, because that's one of the central problems of, of the way in which our democracy works that. You you know, everything's decided at Westminster. um, And most of the money sits at Westminster too. Um, And of course, that sucks all the capacity, it sucks all the expertise, and it sucks all the money as well.
4: Sarah, for those who don't know the sort of ins and outs, give us some examples of things which are at Westminster and should be not at Westminster, but should be devolved.
2: Stuff like trade and investment um, is, is basically all coordinated at, 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 um, at Westminster. And I think, you know, you could do more to, to, to try and get some of that to, to regions and, and allow them to do more to actually um, build up their own, do their own business support uh, and encourage their own kind of trade investment, particularly at a time of Brexit. Um, stuff like schools. So at the minute we've got a bit of devolution for schools in terms of the adult skills and education. Um, but actually, if you were able to devolve the the work of DWP and the skills uh, and employment support, along with the skills system um, for for particularly for adults um, uh, and for for um, uh, young adults, uh, then you could start to link those up in a much more effective way. So I think you know, employment skills, um, trade and investment. I think those are some of the big things that I think would make a massive difference.
4: Neil. Um, uh... Let's say Jeff gave you real power,
7: um, joint minister with Sarah, what would you do? We need to link up economics and democracy. The defining feature of all economies is wealth. Who has it? Where does it go? And how do more people get their hands on it if you believe in fairness and social justice? So we need to think about wealth, we need to think about power. And what I would do, would do what, in the sense, the Scottish Government's part doing in terms of their community wealth building. Well, firstly, an approach to well-being. So actually, what we're doing as a nation is building up well-being rather than just GDP. That's a nice frame. Um, secondly, then, we need mechanisms to ensure that everybody gets their just deserts as regards wealth. And in that, I would say let's build community wealth building like they've been doing in Preston, and we talked about before in a previous podcast on that. Ed and Jeff, um, the Preston model, community wealth building, which in a sense is hot wiring, social, local economic, cultural and ecological benefit into the economy. It's a, and a, and a process that works and it's a fast-growing movement and the Scottish government has adopted that as part of their programme for government. So big, a big conversation about our uh, constitution, what kind of governance we want, and then a fundamental redistribution of wealth and power. Nothing else will do. You know, we can't keep having what we've got in this present devolution of pleading to Whitehall who holds all the cards. It won't deliver. And also on this levelling up fund, just you an earlier point, I had it called the other day, the levelling up fund, the hanging basket fund, you know, where you, where local authorities get some money to put some fuchsias up in their, uh, in their pedestrian precinct. You know, it's maybe not quite as pathetic as that, but it's a competitive fund for local yeah. authorities having to bid for Tarting up bits of um. their public realm, that's what it's about. This is a joke, levelling up fun, and it's a hanging back. Garden centres will do well with it.
4: Let, let me ask you, um, finally, uh, maybe Neil, um, we haven't talked about the big experiment in devolution that's happened in the UK in the last 20 years, which is around devolution to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Just say a little bit, will you, about whether there are lessons we can learn from that.
7: Absolutely, because uh, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have made a good success of those uh, devolved administrations. They've put decisions closer to the people. Sarah's point, the decisions it made for the people of Wales, Scotland Ireland are closer to those administrations. And it means that the politician, when they walk down Cardiff, Landudno, wherever they may be, they walk down the street and somebody's saying to them, you know what, this is not right mate, I want this done, or that's really good what you've done. There's an intimacy, intimacy there, there's a relationship there, there's a demos there. And that is fundamentally important, and we can see it in a whole range of policies. Give people a closer relationship to decisions that are made, and we will get better policy. Great policy thrives on transparency. It thrives on fresh air. It thrives on accountability. The UK state, because of its historical legacies, closes democracy off to the people, and that's how we get crap policy, and that's how we've got massive problems in terms of our inequality and injustices.
4: Well, look, as always, um, you are justifiably a friend of the pod. I think you definitely would get the job in the um, in the Jeffocracy. Uh, we might um, we might tr- we might try and get um, Barlow's
7: sort of. You know, the ghost of Barlow past. I I looked his name up and it's Anderson Montague Barlow. So I think Montague Barlow, nice, isn't it? Montague
4: Montague Barlow. Um, Exactly. Full Monty Uh, Barlow. Going the full full Monty on devolution. Um, uh, Sarah Longlands, director of IPPR North. Neil McEnroy, uh, chief executive of of Clare's. Thank you so much uh, both for joining us. It was brilliant. Well, it's taken us 169 episodes but Jeff the
3: has been born. It's a, a very exciting moment in world history, British history, but yeah, you know, as you say, most of all in the history of reasons to be cheerful. What would the prefix
4: to Jeff the be?
3: I mean, other than King? Well, you can't. You're not. You not you can not be King. Well,
4: thanks. Why not? Well, <laughs> President Jeff the I, I mean, Emperor Jeff the What about What about something a bit more like Down with the People? brother jeff comrade Jeff
3: comrade brother brother
4: (laughs) (laughs) answers on a postcard ask me anything so well i thought i thought that was absolutely fascinating and i love talking about history i i didn't really i didn't really do enough history at school and honestly whenever you have a someone talking about the history it sort of it kind of opens the whole opens your mind doesn't it in a way
3: it really does and and it kind of takes you out of what's going on at the moment and just gives you a much broader view on things as well
4: i to i totally um yeah i totally agree what did you think about the devolution stuff then
3: I t- tell you something that i was thinking during it um you know it's it's a wretched time at the moment for so many reasons but you know, especially something that emerged when we were talking to Sarah and Neil was it. It feels like we need to have a conversation as a country about what kind of country we want to be. And, and- well, look, I
4: completely agree with you. If there's any time to do it. It's sort of post post Brexit. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like you know, how are we governed? You know, how are we governed? I mean, that that's like a massive. It's obviously a massive presenting. Uh, question um you know we've had this row about the internal market bill going on and the international law was the thing that got attention but there's equally an issue about you know whether it uh, in its current form respects devolution which i don't believe it does you know it's it's so yeah i I think so i I think the other point i would make which i've probably made to you before but i think it's just so important is people think well you know devolution who cares etc In the end, this is about whether you have control or can elect the people who make big decisions about your life locally. And I always use the example of buses because as a constituency MP, the quality of the bus services drives people absolutely bananas. And, you know, it's like, who do you really elect? Now, we now have a South Yorkshire mayor who has some power over them. So we're sort of we're kind of getting somewhere, but we're still incredibly centralised, you know. But it's like it's it's. When all's said and done, really, what's this all about? This is about giving people more of a say over the things that matter to them.
2: You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: Well, for our cheerful people spot this week, we're joined live from Paris by the hosts of a brilliant new French podcast, a C, what if, uh, by Benoit Hamon, who is former French presidential candidate, and Camille Mastracci. Hello, both. Hi. Hello. This is so exciting, so, Jeff, isn't it? It is. I mean, well, I suppose my first question is, was, was there any particular inspiration for your
8: podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Where does that, that question come from?
4: <laughs> we are so excited to have you on.
8: Yeah, well, definitely, definitely. The story of the, of the podcast, if you must know, um, starts with me, actually. I was the one to, uh, to ask Benoit to participate to uh, this crazy adventure. I was working as a freelance as a freelancer for a couple of months by becoming a, a freelancer I wanted to you know my work to have some meaning and um, and I was pitching uh, podcast ideas to podcast production studios and everything. And while I was brainstorming and uh, on this uh, personal research, I found out about uh, a very interesting podcast. And I, I don't know if you heard of it, <laughs> uh, "Reasons to Be Cheerful." And um, one thing leading to another, I just uh, I reached out to Benoît Hamon and uh, and he uh, he seemed uh, ready for <laughs> for taking this challenge. <laughs> and and
3: Benoît, from your point of view, did you think? After 2015, it was all over for Ed Miliband. There was there was no coming back. And yet somehow, <laughs> somehow somebody saw something in him and rehabilitated him. And and may, maybe Camille can do this for me.
5: I knew Ed Miliband, of course, uh, as a member of the French Socialist Party, and uh, I was uh, really interested to 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 discover your podcast when uh, uh, Camille. Um, talk to me about this, uh, your, your podcast. And it was, uh, uh, for me, very interesting to see um, how a journalist like you, Jeff, and uh, um, um, a former very uh, famous political uh, leader in the UK, um, succeed to uh, have discussions, to uh, exchange some uh, arguments, uh, to think with people.
4: How have you found the podcast experience? Are you enjoying the freedom that it gives you?
5: In France, the atmosphere has never been so um, tense, um, aggressive, uh, confrontational, you know? And um, I told you I, I needed really to have a, a, um, a moment to um, to discuss with uh, Um, Camille, but uh, some of uh, our guests, uh, uh, and to discuss quietly. Tell us about the subjects, um, Camille
4: or Benoit, tell us about the subjects that you've been covering, because I think I'm right in saying that you've recorded already four um, uh, uh, podcasts, you're doing it monthly. Tell us about what subjects you have discussed.
8: The first episode is called What If School uh, Never Ended? (laughs) <laughs> um it's about the um lifelong education and we chose to uh, focus on the, the the example of Denmark, uh where they have what it's what is called um you know popular education the second one is called uh uh what if uh, we stopped what if we stopped uh, sitting down And it's about um, uh, the the serious, very serious problem of uh, sedentarity, uh, which is the fact that we stay way too much um, seated, way too much time seated. It made us think about, you know, our way of living, the fact that we spend a lot of time uh, during uh, um, uh, watching screens, um, and so we are seated. The fact also that we consider that the less effort we we do we make uh, the better it is and then uh, our last episode was about um, the alternative um, indicators the fact that we we only focus uh, all our policies and, and everything on the gdp and that um uh, uh there are a lot of other indicators of the the well-being of a nation which are not considered at all it sounds
4: excellent we all our listeners should download it um <laughs> uh and they can improve their french if they don't speak french and uh and um and they can learn a lot let me ask you one other question to both of you maybe i think of france as a country that really embraces big ideas uh, in politics that has a big appetite in its public debate for um uh for big ideas is that right uh, is it true in this in this era how have you found the 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 uh, reaction uh to talking about these big ideas
5: i'm not so sure that france is um still um, in love with big ideas During the the last past uh, presidential election, for example, during the um, presidential debate with uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, uh, François Fillon, uh, the the first question of uh, of the journalist was, uh, Benoît Hamon, Emmanuel Macron, François Fillon, Marine Le Pen, uh, which president of the republic do you want to be? And I didn't want to answer that. And I replied that I believed uh, that the question was not the right one, but should rather be, which people do we want to be? And uh, uh, a slogan of my election campaign was, uh, uh, vote for, to call uh, voters to choose a desirable, um, uh, a lovable future and not just block out uh, a candidate they didn't like. I don't see in our public debate today uh, a lot of great ideas. That's why it's, it was very interesting for us to, to see your podcast, because I think really we have we have to open um, our minds on the rest of Europe, on the ideas in, in the rest of Europe, in, Uni- in USA too, in uh, Latin, in South America, etc., etc., my opinion is that we are not in France, especially now. We are in very, very, very difficult situation, even on the intellectual plan. Well, look, we,
4: we are delighted to have had you um, on, on our uh, podcast. I feel like we are the beginnings of a global podcast movement. <laughs> um, it's an entente cordiale. Uh, yes. Of, of, of 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 ex-labor and socialist yes. um sort of uh leaders i mean unfortunately there are a number of socialists and labor leaders around the world who haven't won elections um uh and so we we could have a i think i feel like we are we are a kind of growing movement um of people interested in ideas and, and changing the world uh, uh one
2: podcast at a time
4: uh benoît Amor uh, Camille uh, Mastracci, thank you so much for
5: joining us.
8: Thank you so much.
5: Thank you, thank you.
2: Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
3: Oh, we're in the outro. Yep. Yeah, we're, we're in the outro. Here we are. Um, oh, I've had a million pound idea. Go on. It's Marigold's that work on a on an iphone or a smartphone touch screen marigold gloves yeah have you never been doing the washing up and then somebody's called you yeah and you've not been able to answer the phone or not been able to text somebody whilst wearing marigolds so what do you do what's the answer i don't know you would you would put some kind of uh gizmo or some kind of widget in the end in the fingertips so that you can you can use your rubber gloves on your phone Uh, I know water and phones isn't a good mix but they are getting increasingly waterproof Did you have
4: this experience being unable to answer the phone? Exactly that, yeah yeah. I've actually got a gloves story of my own though which is that I've got these gloves for cold water swimming which have suddenly been transformative I mean they're called heat gloves but basically it's something about them not being well they just don't seem to let the water in so I was just having incredibly numb hands
3: Hang on, so you're you, you wearing Speedos and gloves and that's it?
4: I'm wearing swimming trunks, which are sort of like, I think it's neoprene sort of swimming shorts. Um, a hat, gloves and things on my feet.
3: Right. D- what, Veruca socks on your feet?
4: No, no, like heat... Well, I mean, actually, I'm trying to get the matching heat socks at the moment and I found an <laughs> obs- obscure... <laughs> a, I found an obscure... I, I mean, it's like I found a swimming club in the southwest that seemed to be the only place to stop them. So I was very lucky to get this last pair of swimming socks which should be arriving today. I mean, they're called booties, but that's just too embarrassing. Yeah. Uh,
3: but when I when I texted you to tell you about my next door neighbour cold water swimming and I said that he wore a wetsuit, you said that was cheating. Well, I'm not wearing. Isn't, your... isn't it cheating? I mean, I mean, you. I'm you not You're, wearing you're it. almost wearing. You... Well, not really. No, but you're very covered. You've got your hat. You've got these gloves. You've got these big socks. You've you've got your Victorian bathing shorts or whatever they are. I mean, well, look under my a high percentage of you is covered up.
4: Undermine me if you want, but I mean, my
3: legs and my or the, or the whole of my upper torso are not covered. It's very arousing thought. Well, no, not really. But I mean, uh, I mean, maybe that. Well, I am so desperate to see you in your macho man outdoor swimming get up. Definitely listen, not. Listen, I, n- I know that you're feeling rushed, like you're very busy with your your proper job at the moment, yeah. and, and I bet you're quite stressed out about Christmas shopping. If if you got somebody to take a full length photo of you in your outdoor swimming gear, that that would be enough of a Christmas present for me. Framed, <laughs> yes. I mean, I'd frame it myself. Just the photo would be fine.
4: What you then have it alongside the trampoline, a still from the trampoline video and the Icelandic thermal <laughs> exactly, bar. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this could become a sort of a meme. Mm,
3: an Ed time capsule.
4: Right, let's thank our guests Sarah Longlands, Neil McEnroy and Tony Travers.
3: And. Uh, thank you to, uh, to, to, I think, very much our, uh, the children of this podcast, Camille Mastrachi and Benoit Amon. Emma Corsham is the producer of our podcast. Joel Pierce does all the research with backup uh, from Fanula DC, Zoe Gelbert and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the ident Dance Ed Seed composed the music, and our artwork was designed by him.
4: Henry Cole. He's been helping with the homework. He's not been
3: helping with promo videos. And these have been reasons to be cheerful.